we have sung this morning, asking your spirit to come and to fill this place and to fill our lives and to, to teach us. So, Lord, we ask that your spirit, your spirit would now teach us by your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, what is your life ambition? What is it that you earnestly desire more than anything else in this world? What is that one thing that you are willing to sacrifice comfort and other commodities for? Is it financial success? Is it health? Is it community? Is it to be considered by others as a good Christian? Is it to climb the corporate ladder so that you are perceived by yourself or by others as if you have accomplished something with your life? Or how about to be a good and faithful husband or wife, father or mother? Although there's nothing intrinsically wrong with pursuing any one of these things, every single one of them fails in comparison to God's primary calling on our lives as Christians. And as Christians, our desires should merge with our Creator's. As worshipers of the true God, our life ambition should collide with God's ambition. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first half of Acts chapter 16. Jimmy led us through uh, verses 1 through 15. And in that section, in that passage... We saw how God was working behind the scenes to orchestrate circumstances and events in this world for His glory. And so we saw that when Paul and Silas supposed that there was a place of prayer on the road uh, down by the river in Philippi, that that was actually the Holy Spirit urging them, guiding them to go to that place. Because there they would encounter Lydia who would be opened by the Holy Spirit. Her heart would be opened and she would respond to the gospel message and she would come to faith in Christ and her and her whole family would be baptized as a result. This morning we're going to pick up that story and we're going to look at the second half of Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 16. And we saw in the context leading up to where we're going to pick up today We saw how God had set these men apart, had set these people apart to go out on these missionary journeys and to spread the gospel. That was their aim. This was Paul's second missionary journey. And we saw how the Holy Spirit forbid them from going into certain areas, forbid them, for example, from going into Asia on this particular journey, and instead redirected them to go into Macedonia. And so... God sent Paul a vision in the night of a man in Macedonia begging him and the others to come over to Macedonia. So that's what they did. They set sail from Asia. They crossed the Aegean Aegean Sea into Europe uh, and landed and uh, shortly found themselves in the city of Philippi. So this morning as we pick up in Acts 16, verse 16, we see that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke at some point Along the way, the author of Acts, notice the we language, uh, found themselves going back to the same place of prayer where they had encountered Lydia. So follow along with me as I read verses 16 through 18. 
Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, on his first trip uh, down to this place of prayer by the river, Paul, Silas, and the others were fortunate enough to encounter Lydia, which verse 14 told us was a worshiper of God. And she was ready and waiting for the gospel message. She was ready and waiting to hear the truth. And when she did, she responded. This time around, they're not so fortunate. This time around, they run into a slave girl who is possessed by a demon. Now, if you'll notice, the message that she was proclaiming uh, in content was not false. It was true. They were, in fact, servants of the Most High God. They were, in fact, proclaiming the way to be saved. But those of you that uh, are involved in any kind of business practice, businessmen or businesswomen, know that first impressions, presentations are important, are they not? And being introduced by the town crazy that was possessed by a demon did not exactly get them off on the right foot. And so Paul turns around, he's fed up, and he commands this demon to be cast out in the name of Jesus Christ, showing that he has the same authority in the name of Jesus as the apostles did. Now this was the same thing would be true uh, in evangelism. Now not that, not that the gospel can be sold like uh, any sort of product. That's not the way that we're supposed to approach evangelism. But at the same time, when we're sharing our faith, we want to start off on a good foot. We want to, to gain some credibility so that people will listen to what we have to say. And we found this to be true, those of us that uh, recently came back from Belize. We participated in a number of different types of ministry there, but several of us spent three straight mornings, or maybe one, two uh, of those mornings, going house to house, uh, meeting people uh, with the express purpose of telling them why we're there, what we're doing that week, and hopefully uh, gaining an opportunity to share the gospel, the true reason why we were there. And we quickly found out that we were dependent on the nationals from the local church that we were partnered with to make a good first impression, to help us gain some credibility so that we could then tell them why we're really there. Because if not, we just look like those crazy white people that came from a long way away that didn't know the native language. And that's not what we wanted. And so this is a similar circumstance for Paul, Silas, and the others. This, de- this demon-possessed girl was doing something expressly forbidden among God's people in the Old Testament. And they did not want Christianity or what they were about or the gospel message to be associated with her. Now, we don't know what happened to her. This is, this is the only picture we have of her. We don't know if, she then, if this young girl then became a Christian. We, we have no idea. That was not Luke's purpose in including that episode, that story. And as we continue to read, we, we realize that the reason that Luke included that story is because that story 
sheds a light on what then happens to Paul and Silas as a result. So look back with me at verse 19 as we pick up the story. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Verse 22, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So these, these owners, these slave owners, do what uh, many of us do when something dear to us is taken from us. Whether it's a job, whether, whatever it is, if something's taken from us, we quickly want to blame somebody else, don't we? This is exactly what they did. Their source of income was now lost. Uh, they had learned to make a pretty penny off this uh, slave girl that could uh, do things that demon-possessed people uh, could do. And so they're upset about it. They're mad about it. And they quickly blame Paul and Silas. They seize them. They drag them to the marketplace. They take them before the magistrates, which are... The officials in Roman colonies, there would have been two in each colony. Philippi was a Roman colony. Take them before the magistrates, and they begin to accuse them of doing things that they really didn't do. Uh, they attack the fact that they're Jews. They're advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to practice. And we don't really know why Paul and Silas got dragged into this, and Timothy and Luke somehow uh, fell to the side. Perhaps it was the fact that Paul and Silas were perceived as the leaders. Definitely, Paul and Silas were the two Jews of the group. Uh, remember that Luke, we believe, was a Gentile, and Timothy was a half-Jew. And this was in a region where anti-Jewish sentiment was common. Um, people frowned upon others actively seeking religious converts. And so they knew how to rouse the crowd. They knew how to get the crowd upset, and that's exactly what they did. These magistrates wanted to maintain civil order. That was their job, to maintain order in the colony. And so they wanted to, in turn, appease the crowd. So they, they brought Paul and Silas forward, gave them a good beating, and then threw them in jail. Now, we can't skip over the details of that beating and that uh, imprisonment uh, because magistrates had attendants, they had police, that would go about in these towns and they would carry bundles of rods that were glued together, that were fastened together as a display of their right to inflict serious punishment on those that disrupted social order or disobeyed the law. This was not the kind of spanking parents that you give your kids. This was serious punishment. The NIV says that they were severely flogged the ESV states that uh, they were inflicted with many blows on their bare skin. So they were given a good beating, thrown in the jail cell, locked up in stocks, and guarded carefully by a guard whose express purpose, his sole purpose, was to make sure they didn't escape. 
So they would have been put in the, in the prison cell with these stalks fastened on their feet, not only to ensure that they didn't escape, but also to inflict more discomfort, explaining at least in part why they were up all night. Now, at this point in the story, it makes sense for us, it makes rational sense, logical sense for us as readers to kind of stop and say, God, whatever happened to your providential guidance? Where did they go wrong? It made sense when they went the first time to the place of prayer because Lydia was there waiting on them. And she came to faith. She was eager to respond to the gospel. They had made a convert, making the whole trip worthwhile right then and there. God, where did Paul and Silas and the others miss the boat this time around? Where did they suppose wrong? When were they supposed to leave this place and go on somewhere else? And it's, it's natural for us to feel that way because we live in a time and in a culture that encourages us to be consumed with ourselves, don't we? That's what we're told all the time. Pursue more, more, and more. You can have whatever you want in your life. As long as you put your mind to it, as long as you work hard enough, you can have or accomplish whatever you wish, whatever makes you happy. That's what you're to do with your life. If you've accomplished the American dream of a nice home and nice cars and kids who make straight A's and get college scholarships and don't get in trouble and don't ruin the family name, and you get to go on a luxurious vacation whenever you feel like it, and you have a comfortable retirement, then you have succeeded, and you can sit back and enjoy your life. Right? That's what we're told. And I want to say this morning, from, based on the events of this story, this passage, that I believe what took place here was all part of God's plan. That God was behind it all, using it all to spread the gospel, to spread his fame, to magnify his name through Paul and Silas and the others. And that bothers us, doesn't it? That rubs us wrong, because not only do we hear that message about Pursue more, more, more in the culture. We are even hearing it in churches. We're hearing it behind pulpits. We're hearing it from church pastors and leaders. Do you realize that the pastor of the largest congregation in the United States with some 45,000 weekly attendants and a television broadcast that reaches millions more thrives off that type of message? And it's a lie. It's junk. Do not believe it because your best life is not now. Your best life is in the future when you see your Savior face to face and you spend eternity with him and you fall down at his feet compelled to worship him because you simply cannot help yourself because you're overflowing with joy and thanksgiving. Let me remind you, church, this morning that the Christian walk is a walk of sacrifice, that following Christ means sacrifice. Remember Jesus' words in Luke chapter 9? He says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow 
me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Your life is not about you. My life is not about me. As the people of God, as Christians, our lives are about spreading the fame of our great God and Savior and merging with His desires. His desires to make Himself known. Naturally, our desire as His people should be to make His name known. And the incredible thing about all of this is that it is totally worth it. Yes, it's a sacrifice, but it's a joy to serve our great God wholeheartedly. Because the more we get to know him, the more that we want what he wants. And we see even from this episode this morning, as we continue, that the sacrifice was totally worth it. Pick up with me in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. Now that is a picture of joy in the face of suffering. A sign of recognizing the Holy Spirit's place in the heart of believers is joy, rejoicing even in the midst of persecution. And those of you that are familiar with the book of Acts and familiar with the New Testament recognize that this is a theme throughout the New Testament, especially the book of Acts. And as we read this, it reminds us of Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John, the other apostles, were arrested for teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ in the temple courts. And they were taken in, they were thrown in jail, but in the middle of the night an angel of the Lord came and let them out. And the next day the Jewish religious leaders are upset, obviously, and they go and they find the apostles in the exact same place teaching in the temple courts again. And so they go and they arrest them again, and they're trying to figure out what to do with them. These are the same Jewish religious leaders that that arrested and convinced the crowds to crucify Jesus, their Lord. And now the followers are doing the same thing, proclaiming the same message. And so the council gets together, the Sanhedrin, and remember Gamaliel convinces them to let the apostles go. He says, "If, if they're really of God, you can't stop them. But if it's not of God, it's going to die down. The message is going to stop. So they let them go, but not before beating them. Not before punishing them. And Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42, reads this way. It says, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
So they were flogged and then released. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Knowing Christ, serving Christ faithfully, being saved by the grace of God, these things produce joy in the lives of believers. Now who in the right mind, honestly, who in the right mind would rejoice in such hardship, such physical and verbal persecution The kind that the apostles faced in Acts chapter 5 and the the kind that we're reading about this morning in Acts chapter 16 with Paul and Silas. Who would be joyful in the midst of that? And I want to tell you who. Those that have gone from death to life. Those that have been forgiven a tremendous debt. Those that were dead in their sins and opposing God and out of fellowship with him but have now found themselves by God's grace alive in Christ and in right relationship with their creator those that have been forgiven, those that have been set free, those that have new life, us, the people of God, have reason to rejoice no matter the circumstances. I also want you to see the response of those that that were there. I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes when I read the Bible and we read about these kind of superheroes of our faith, these missionaries... Uh, I think that you know they've got this super super dose of Holy Spirit in them, and they can do things, and, and they can feel a certain way that the rest of us can't. And I don't think that's true. Notice the response of the prisoners. They didn't really have a dog in the fight. There was an earthquake in the night. They're set free. The doors are open. They can get out of there. This is their chance for escape. And what do they do? They stay put. They're amazed by these guys. Now, we don't, we don't have all the details, but obviously they were captivated by the joy and the faith and the singing and the praying of Paul and Silas in the middle of the night and in terrible conditions. It caught them by surprise, as it did the jailer, the guard, who's about to kill himself because he thinks that the one task, the one job he's been given for the night, he's failed at. The prisoners have escaped. That's when Paul steps in and says, no, we're right here. And I also want you to see the response of Paul and Silas. Because it would make sense, even for them, wouldn't it? Guys who have been beaten, wrongly accused, treated badly, thrown in a jail cell. Now, obviously, God has providentially sent this earthquake so that the prisoners would be free, so that they could leave. And what do they do? They see it as an opportunity to share the gospel with the very guy who is supposed to be guarding them. And so they do that. And what does it say in verses 31 and 32? The jailer asks, how can I be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now in the New Testament, the family unit was taken very seriously. But this is not saying that if the jailer believes, his whole house will be saved. This is not what this is saying. It's saying, you believe and your house believe this message. It is for you. And they began to instruct them in the gospel, teaching them the faith. And this flies in the face of the often used Christian cliche 
preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And that sounds good. And obviously our, our actions, the way that we live, should reflect the gospel. But that's insufficient. Church, it is necessary to use words to communicate the gospel message, the truths of God that he has entrusted to us and called us to spread in his name. And so that's exactly what Paul and Silas did. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. This is all the same night. In the middle of the night, they stop and they are speaking the gospel, speaking the truths of God's word to the jailer in his household. And what is his response? He believes. They believe. They take him in. They have joyous fellowship together. He's baptized. He washes their wounds. They have a fellowship meal together. What an expression of Christian unity as a result of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned Belize earlier. While we were in Belize, uh, we participated in a number of things from construction to sports ministry to VBS to evangelism to uh, conducting church services. But the thing that stood out in my mind the most was the hospitality and the fellowship that we received from our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church there in Santa Clara, Belize. That two groups of people that seem to have little in common on a number of levels could come together and unite and have fellowship because we share the bond of the Holy Spirit. We've received the gospel of Jesus Christ. How quickly we often forget that our brothers and sisters, even in this very room, have received the same riches in Christ that we have and how easily it should be for us to come together over those things. So what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? That's the response that was given. How can I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. I want to say that it doesn't just mean uh, to believe in God. I would say it doesn't just mean to even believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember that the demons believe that. The demons believed in God. That's what Scripture says. To believe in the Lord Jesus means to believe that he is the Lord and that he's your Lord and to recognize his lordship over your life and to trust in him with your life. And as, he, as your Lord, you naturally want to follow after him. He's your master. It's to trust that what he did on the cross is sufficient for your salvation. And that's what they did. Notice that relationships change in Christ, neither occupation nor ethnicity, race, social standing. None of these can come between the fellowship that we have and the bond that we have in the Holy Spirit of God. I want you to especially notice the response of the jailer and his family. Verse 34, what does it say? It says that he was filled with with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his household. The ESV says, rejoiced, filled with joy, rejoiced. And this word that's used here and translated in that way was a Greek word that was, on, that was not used by secular writers because it signified a deep spiritual joy. The kind of joy that we only experience in hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, salvation changes you. 
It is impossible to hear and to believe and to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and remain the same. It is impossible. God uses it to change our lives. And that night, that late night, the jailer who believed this message, believed in the gospel, would never have believed that message if Paul and Silas hadn't been beaten and thrown in prison. And they never would have been beaten and thrown in prison had they not encountered the slave girl that was possessed by a demon on the road by the river. They wouldn't have encountered that girl if the Holy Spirit had not directed them through a vision in the night to go into Macedonia. So what I want you to see this morning, church, is that God is at work. God is providentially guiding and orchestrating events so that people will hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's about. And as Christians, that's what we're to be about. Have you joined him? This is what Jesus commanded us to do, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Have you joined in that task? Are you sacrificing time? Are you sacrificing comforts? Are you sacrificing yourself in order to magnify your Savior, in order to spread the love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. And the best illustration that I could think of to describe that this morning is to imagine that you are driving down Highway 280, something we're all familiar with. And if you're not, uh, imagine a busy highway somewhere in your neck of the woods. You're driving down Highway 280 one morning during rush hour, traveling west toward downtown. And you look around and you notice that you're going with the flow of traffic. You're moving slow, you're putting along, but you are with 90% of the cars because you are going downtown during rush hour in the morning. And so you're moving along and finally you you notice that you're, you're getting to go pretty good. You hit about 30 miles per hour, which is pretty good during rush hour on 280. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm going the wrong direction. And so you gently apply pressure to the brake, and you get in the left lane, and you see a place, you see an intersection up ahead, and you get to that intersection, and you begin to turn around when the light turns green, the arrow turns green, and you make a U-turn. And as you make a U-turn, you're now going east. Everybody else seems to be going west, but you're going east, and you're moving a little better, and you merge over, and you get on the highway. And even though you seem out of place, you suddenly realize that you're going the right way. It's the narrow road, but it's the right road. Because like Saul of Tarsus, who was confronted with the sin on the road to Damascus, you've been confronted with your sin, and you recognize that God has saved you by his grace. And now you have forgiveness, and you have a new mission, and a new purpose, and you're on the way of salvation. You're on the way of following Christ. And you're running after the things that God is after. And your desires have now become like God's desires. And his ambitions of making himself famous and spreading his fame and spreading the good news of salvation across the earth have now become your desires. In the last few verses of Acts 16, we hear the conclusion of the story. And in that section, we read about Paul and Silas being released from prison And then they go and they stop at Lydia's house and they fellowship with the believers there in Philippi before going on and and setting off for Thessalonica to do the exact same thing. 
to spread the glory and the love of a Savior. And so I ask you this morning, is that what you're doing? Are you giving your life to share that story? And we also ask the question, did these events happen in Acts 16? Did God allow these things to happen to Paul and Silas just so the jailer and his family and maybe a few others would come to know him? And I'm absolutely convinced that the biblical answer is a resounding yes. Because the gospel is that beautiful. And the message is that urgent. Are you giving your life to know Christ and to make him known? As we conclude, hear Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 6. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this episode in Acts 16 that that highlights the importance of seeking the things that you are about, laying aside our own wants and our own comforts in order to pursue something greater, Lord, in order to be obedient to you, in order to be faithful to you, and to join in the task of spreading your fame across the earth. Lord, may that be what we're about today and every day as your people, Lord. You've called us, you've equipped us by your Spirit, Lord, help us to faithfully respond. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.